outside. <gasps> so we'll have to, we'll quickly go out and then we can kind of afternoon. I'm T. Hetzel. You're listening to Living Writers. Oh, and today in the studio, I'm so happy to have Deborah Eisenberg here. Thanks. Thanks for coming, Deborah. Oh, well, thanks for inviting me. <laughs> we had a very quiet intro there, didn't we? <laughs> yes, I could barely hear it. <laughs> me too. I kept thinking it might be. It's, uh, it's Goreski. I don't know if I'm pronouncing that correctly, but it, it's. I thought there might be a slight swelling where we could then jump off from that but it's so quiet <laughs> i guess on a rainy day yes that might work o- okay well i think it is rainy so yeah, the song's raining too right, right. <laughs> very drizzling <laughs> um uh, you're listening to wcbn fm ann arbor and hugh stimson is engineering today on living writers thanks hugh um and thanks to alex sergey the lazy dj for bringing us in to the to the the living writers hour um deborah's in town visit and uh, on the crest of, of your latest short story collection, um, Twilight of the Superheroes um, stories, which is just a, a wonderful uh, collection, Deborah. But before I go on and on praising you, which I could. Oh, that's <laughs> quite all right. <laughs> you're like, I'm just tired of all the praise. I think I'm going to read just your, your short biography. Sure. Just to Great. give us a place to jump yeah. from. Excellent. Uh, Deborah Eisenberg is the author of three previous collections of stories, the recipient of many awards, including a Guggenheim Fellowship, a Lannan Foundation Fellowship, a RE Award, and a Whiting's Award. She lives in New York City and teaches at the University of Virginia. And now we can fill in all the other parts. Oh, there are many decades, but... They've all been the same, so there's really no point. I don't believe you. What do you mean? They couldn't have all been the same. No, of course they haven't. One gets older. Uh, <laughs> That's just your way of sidestepping it, isn't it, Deborah? <laughs> She's found me out. Because tomorrow, your your talk at Rackham um, in the amphitheater will be uh, on fiction and privacy. Is well, that, that the that's title? the title the of it. Okay. Yeah. Because I was wondering, are I... Are you uh, the 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 woman of mystery here uh, before me? <laughs> no, I'm just sort of the woman of innocuousness or something. No, no, uh, no real, the most no real humble mystery. woman alive. <laughs> no, but it's um, but it's interesting because I was I was looking at part of your history. You you grew up in a suburb um, outside of Chicago. Yes, yes. Um, and then, and you moved to New York City um, in the the sixties. That's right. And and then from there, that seems to be when um, 
is it fair to say that's maybe when your writing life began or was it always just sort of gestating or, or marinating or? No, in fact, uh, or at least not in any way that I knew of. It, it, once I started writing, it became retrospectively reasonable to think that it was something I would be doing, but it wasn't something that I ever thought that I would be able to do. And I... Hmm. Why? Why do you think well, that is? Well, I never thought... There, there are a few reasons. One is all my, all my early big, good experiences were reading experiences when I was really quite young. I'd say up until I was maybe 15 or 16, at which point I fell into a sort of deep sleep that lasted for a very long time. But like, bef- a, like a decade or? or? Uh, until I was, yeah, certainly for a decade, easily for a decade. Isn't that interesting, like this sleep meaning that things, that you were obviously functioning Yes. But what was what was something was there something missing or off kilter? I'm not sure how to put it. I just had been I would say very um mentally alive and energetic uh and in a certain way industrious or at least inquiring up until that time and then I, it seemed to take all of my energy just managing to stay alive somehow. And so... Like the life's practicalities in that way, like one mm, thing leading no. to another or, 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 no. or was there, because sometimes I think sometimes there's a large shock or a trauma and then you go into a period of... Uh, Without and you don't even know you're in it until it could be a decade later, and you suddenly you're walking along a sidewalk and you think, "I'm waking up from." And but what's is that? Well, it was like some sort of dormancy. Mm-hmm. Uh, alas, it wasn't walking along the sidewalk that. Uh, but I. Uh, you know, my big experiences were reading experiences, and reading was what I loved, mm-hmm. and the world inside books was pretty much the most vivid and most alluring world to me. But uh, it just never occurred to me that I would myself be able to write. And I certainly had friends who, when I was in high school, who said that they were going to be writers. And I thought, well, how come they get to be writers and I don't? (laughs) Were they the folks on the school newspaper or or putting together the yearbook or something like that? Yes, mostly I'm thinking of kids on the literary magazine and that that sort of thing. Right, right, okay. You know, real, what I considered to be real... The black turtleneck crew. Absolutely. And I wore my black turtleneck. I still do. So do I. But 
it just I just didn't think that I would be able to I didn't think that I was anointed in that way and um, so when I began writing I began at 30 uh, after I, I fell I fell into I stopped smoking and I fell into tiny little pieces and um, then I started writing. Do you think it was just that your that your consciousness fractured into pieces without having something like cigarettes to to keep it propelled? Yeah, I would say uh, cigarettes were a sort of they were they were a substitute for everything for me, for a life, for a mind, for a personality. Mm-hmm. And, of course, the narcotic was a huge element of it because I found that when I stopped, I was just exploding with rage, just exploding. Uh. And um, with no possibility of inhaling nicotine. And... Also, no wonderful, you know, I'd open my mouth and words would come out, usually at the top of my lungs, rather than a nice <laughs> cloud of smoke. <laughs> and, uh, you know, no pleasant fog around me then. Huh. And so it was cigarettes rather than alcohol that was that it was your, your yeah. choice yeah. for those years. Yeah, absolutely. Okay. Uh, and... Why did you have to stop? Was it just some sort of wake-up call that you decided on, or was it... No, I'd say it was, like everything else, it was overdetermined. But the main stimulus was that I, when I was about 26, I met this fabulous man whom I now live with. I mean, I still live with him. Can we I, name is, him? Is it Wallace Sean? Very good guess. <laughs> Very good guess. I get a prize at the break. Right? Yes, you do. Yes, you do. And he is really terrific. And um, he was also at that time very asthmatic. Uh. And all the information about secondhand smoke was coming out, passive smoking and so on. And I thought, well, I I don't really mind if these things kill me, mm. but this is the first really terrific guy I've ever met. I don't want to kill him. <laughs> So that was one reason I stopped. But I also think that actually a new personality um, was taking some kind of root in me and was about to come up through the concrete, you know, and destroy the concrete. And yes, yes, it was... It was a very good thing. And also, I think that uh, I really was in a, a state of complete despair as well. I told some of the students yesterday that my ambition in life had been to do nothing. And it really was my serious ambition. But, but how do you define nothing? Well... 
you know, you can lie in bed and play with your toes. That's <laughs> is that it? That that's included. But not that seems only, rather active to me, yes, Deborah. Yes, but you can't do it twenty four hours a day. But it, it's first of all, how do you make a living? And second of all, I mean Wallace kept saying to me, you won't be happy. Mm. You're going to have to find something that you enjoy doing. And I said, no, I will be happy. <laughs> Watch this. But but he was right. He was really right. Mm. And I was in a state of kind of misery. So everything combined to have this sort of, in a way, an eruption of a kind of an almost infant 30-year-old. I I get where you're coming from, Deborah. I'm sorry to hear that. <laughs> and we're going to take a short break and we'll be right back. Okay. You're listening to Living Writers. Um, we'll be right back with Deborah Eisenberg.
Hi, welcome back. If you're just tuning in, uh, you've got Living Writers here on WCBN-FM. Uh, I'm T. Hetzel, and today in the studio, Deborah Eisenberg. Um, we are uh, we're talking uh, about her biography. That's what we've been kind of... <laughs> the birth of a writer. Um, and, and her latest collection is uh, Twilight of the Superheroes, uh, put out by Picador. Um, so, so Deborah, maybe, um, maybe before we go on, before you read a, a piece for us, sure. um, it's, you're, you're a short story writer extraordinaire, I would say. Thank you. Like reading, reading this collection, it was, um, it, it's like, it's a, there's nothing like it, like the compactness of the short story and, and, and that's your chosen art form. Cause we sort of left everyone at the break with your, <laughs> what was coming. And then, so you began writing, was it the short story that you, that you ran into or that erupted or, or. Yeah, I would say, well, uh, th- I, the first thing I wrote, which did turn into a story, and I don't like it very much. It's in my first collection, but it's the only thing that most people like of mine. But I don't like it very much. <laughs> which story it's is It's called which... Days, and it's Days. the only autobiographical story. And it's um, a rather, in certain ways, amusing account of the story that I just told you about stopping smoking, uh, although in reality there was nothing amusing about it at all. Mm-hmm. It took me three years, basically, to write that story, no good as it may be, and I thought that I was keeping a sort of journal of going to the gym at the YMCA and running, and... <laughs> Uh, that was an error, as it turned out. But So you thought this writing was a journal, but it was working towards the first short story? Yes. And again, I have to cite the wonderful boyfriend, because he had sort of, at my lowest point of anguish, misery, and fallen apartness, he put a notebook and pencil in my hand and said, okay, now you have nothing to lose. Go ahead. So... Oh, it was just impossible. I mean, I couldn't write at all. And why was he thinking? Was he's a playwright as as well as an actor, right? right? So is that why he was thinking this was the thing that would make you happy, or did, or something, or did you did you come go to the new school for writing, or what? Oh no, no. I went to the new school, but in social sciences, their undergraduate second. Uh, I mean, third and fourth year program. But, um, no, everybody had always thought I'd be a writer. Everybody had always thought that. But not you? No. I mean, I just didn't think I would be able to do it. Well, it takes a lot of work, too. And if you were kind of banking on doing nothing, that would sort of defeat Oh, it wasn't the work I was... I didn't mind the idea of working. I minded the idea of credentials. <laughs> okay. Oh, I'm glad we clarified that. Yes. Okay. Yeah. Amen. <laughs> yeah. I just couldn't stand it. I found it so completely obscene. <laughs> and um, and the whole idea of 
accomplishment, prestige, and so on. I just couldn't, I couldn't stand it. Um, Meanwhile, now you've been racking some of them up, though. <laughs> yes, and that's totally the- by error. <laughs> So so then you were there with this notebook and pen put into your hand and I thought I was keeping a journal of going to the Y. And it was very, very difficult for me. I mean I just grasped the pencil in both hands and it it was so difficult to write down the simplest thing and I'd cry and I'd tear it up and throw it out and that sort of thing. But after Oh, a year or so, I had what I thought was, I thought I was actually sort of writing a factual piece in the form of journal that would be uh, a tribute to this wonderful place, the Y, where I went to regain my sanity by running a little every day. And when I say a little, I mean a little. But it was just about all I could do. It was about all I could get out of bed for. And... um, manage. And so I gave it after about a year to Wally or for after longer, a longer period. And I said, okay, here, you know, I've written this piece about the why. And he read it. And he said, well, you're not writing a fact piece, you're writing fiction. So now turn it into fiction. So the whole process started all over again. Or did you argue with him? Did you say no? This is, or or did you realize that because some of your your greatest moments seems seem to have been imaginative, even from when you were young, that this was sort of, even though it's reality, the world you you were saying was the world was actually this imaginative world well, anyway. I thought he was somehow right because I didn't know how to write a fact piece either. And I I thought, oh, okay. I mean, I just thought, oh, okay. I don't even remember what I thought beyond that. But it was very disheartening and frightening. So I took about another year more tears, more crumpled paper, and so on. Very, very frustrating. Gave it back to him, and he said, uh, well, you've turned it into fiction, but now it's lost its life. Do it again. Well, (laughs) I just about fell over. I thought, I can't, I can't, I can't, I can't. And then I thought, well, okay, and I did it. And I did it, and then I'd written a story. And that was my way in. And almost each draft, by the sounds of it, took a year. Because you said it was it in three years ever. in the making. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, but you didn't. But you you held on to it. You believed in it in some way. Something. So well, it was, I didn't have any alternative. You know, it wasn't. It wasn't that people were calling me up and saying, "Hey, want to run the World Bank?" Right. If only. Yeah. Right. <laughs> if only. <laughs> We'd all be so much happier. Now. <laughs> well, well, Deborah, can we hear a little bit of your prose, like a, a small, a, a sure. A I'm going to just say this is a passage that T just picked out for me, and it's from a story. The last story in this collection, the story is called "The Flaw in the Design," 
And I should probably tell you that the uh, personnel of the story, oh, I guess that's called characters. There's a, It's a family. There's a mother and a father and a teenage son. And the father seems to be involved in maybe some uh, sort of large corporate, uh, slightly possibly slippery or dubious business. On the interna- international scale. International, yeah. global, something or other. And the mother is... Um, uh, someone who I would say spends her energy on trying not to understand anything that's happening around her. Um, but she loves her son very dearly. He is probably about 17, 18, apparently very bright, and going through some kind of crisis. So so she's now sitting with him, um, and she says, uh, she says, what, darling, tell me. Please try to tell me so that I can understand, so that I can understand what is happening, so I can try to help you. It's all breaking up, Ma. How long do I have? I'm jumping from flow to flow. Do I have a minute? Do I have another minute after that? Do I have another minute after that? I run my hands over his face to clear the tears and sweat. This is a feeling, darling, I say. My heart is lodged high up near my throat, pounding, as if it's trying to exit my body. It's just a feeling of pressure. We've all experienced something like it at one time or another. You have to remember that it's not possible for you to fix every problem in the world. Frankly, darling, no one has appointed you king of the planet. I force myself to to smile. Every breath I take is a theft, he says. Well, thank thank you. Thanks for reading that, sure. Deborah. Um, so, when I was reading uh, some of some background, um, uh, the, what other people had had said after I read the book, I read the, your book first, and I thought it was um, one of the best pieces of writing um i mean i you're probably tired of hearing this but after september 11th how could i be tired of hearing that (laughs) we're just trying to 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 grapple with 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 what's uh the moment even because your first story is is within that that moment uh, addresses that directly and then um the other stories even and this one seems to as well have very much so in my view uh, yeah. yes mm-hmm. yeah um even would you say even more so than the the title story uh, uh i'd say it the title story addresses the very specific event that crystallizes more or less our experience or did crystallize our experience of the world that we're now living in. 
But that last story that I just read from The Flaw in the Design is the story that I feel um, most broadly explores the feeling of living in that world. And, and it's interesting that it's it seems very important, rather, that the Twilight of the Superheroes is the, is the first, is the lead story of the collection, and A Flaw in the Design is what closes it. That seems very important. Yes, and I was very glad. That was really, I owe that to my editor in a way, because I, you know, I'm such a slow writer, and um, my agent called me up and she said, well, you know, it's been a hundred years. It's about time for another collection, I think. And I said, well, I've only got five stories. I don't really think I, you know, I've got a collection. And then my editor called and said, yeah, you, you know, you've got a collection, but we've got, we've got time. So if you write another story, you know, we won't publish for another year and a half. So if you write another story or two, um, That'll be great. And I'm very, very glad because I agree it is, it's a unit with that story. And otherwise, it really wouldn't, it really wouldn't be. So a flaw in the design was what you, you wrote in that interim. Yes. You yes. had that. Oh, that's, yeah. Well, let's take a short break, Deborah, and we'll come right back. You're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel. And today, Deborah Eisenberg. We'll be back. Hello, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today, Deborah Eisenberg. Um, we just heard um, a section from The Flaw in the Design from um, Deborah's latest collection, Twilight of the Superheroes. It's funny, I always want to say Twilight of the American Superheroes. Whoops. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> the, there goes the artistry. There comes the heavy-handedness, right? <laughs> Oh, boy. But apparently you got the point. (laughs) Right. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not completely thick, although, but... um well, we, we were talking briefly at the break how I have been trying to have sort of had, I wish I, I should have kept a journal about trying to get some of um, your other other 
books to read before this because I was really interested in getting the the um, your two first story collections in the the collected and then parentheses so far um, by Deborah Eisenberg, which is really a great way, a great title. <laughs> yes, I was pleased with the title, which was my idea, but then it turned it out to be not such a good idea because everybody, there was another collection right after that. Yes, <laughs> immediately on its heels, right? Exactly. But then it just seems like you have a good sense of humor. <laughs> Yes, well, I'm glad you construe it that way. <laughs> um, and 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 it was just sort of a, a. It's it's interesting that this this new trend with publishing, where books will be in houses, but they'll be by um, by request or printing on demand, and that seemed to be the case with with this the 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 most recent printing of the collected so far. That's what I understand, and I have no idea what it means. I know that it's expensive, or I think it's expensive, uh, and I don't know how long it takes to get one, or I, I don't know what it means. And, but it's kind of interesting, too, because you think, what is the purpose of then reissuing the collection? Because it was out earlier with someone in 2006, right? And then we've got this reissue apparently this month with Picador. But but I don't I know. We don't have to go I on. I don't it's, have a clue how it works. And, what, and I don't have a clue how it influences royalties or or, or people like having that. access to your work like finding it in a bookshop because these it's almost like they're becoming more yes. archaic right like you you That's won't right. be able to walk through a, a bookshop or, or so to just to find something on your own no it's very hard without. to browse mm-hmm. very hard although we have all the browsing you know co- techniques on the web yes but, uh, it's, but it's different because you can't really or at least I, I'm not adept enough to turn a cyber page. No, no, me, no. <laughs> no, me too. Or what? What's also kind of more laughable is that they say things like, "Well, if you like this, then you'll also like these things." And sometimes you, if you were to trust those lists, I don't know. Oh no, it's the horrifying <laughs> the idea that you are actually somebody else. <laughs> Right. The horror, the horror. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Um, But I was excited to actually find this because it seems like one of uh, an unusual book because it's not a book of short stories. You've also written a play. um, uh, Pastoral, am I saying that correctly? Well, I think so. It was stupid of me to give myself a title that I myself can't pronounce. How do you say it? I'd say pastoral. Pastoral. Okay. Well, I like the sound of that. So that's th- that was a play that was performed in New York City. Yes, and- long ago, but beautifully. And then it, um, a small group did a revival a few years ago, did a gorgeous job of it, too. Oh, that must have been kind of exciting. Did you see it in a different light, or was it like seeing a self from a different time as the writer? Not or? so much, it, because it was just still right there with me. But, of course, it was fun to see a different, also marvelous cast do it. Uh, 
well, too bad. Too bad we can't do it as a radio teleplay. I know. <laughs> no, a radio play. I know. Actually, it would probably be a good radio play. Really? <laughs> I think maybe so. Maybe WCBN can uh, can co-opt it, co-opt the rights or whatever it's called. See, I don't even know. But anyway, we have, we, um, there's a, a, you did a, a, a collaboration with a visual artist, Jennifer Bartlett. Yes. Um, and it became um, a book uh called air 24 hours uh an art book yes so so what was why this collaboration um because it seems like with all you've described your writing process a little bit with i don't mean to categorize it like that but lots of tears and anxiety almost and then to think of working with and off of someone how did that how did that well go for you uh, oh, it was great. I mean, it's much easier to work with somebody else. Uh, but this was not... Was it? Oh, yes. Oh, Hi. God, it's heaven. I mean, I, it was wonderful to do the play because I had all these other people working on it with me. And, uh, I, I mean, the actors performing it. It's just great. You don't have to be in a room all alone. It's just wonderful. And this... This book, uh, which is about a specific series of paintings, was not really a collaboration. It was about that series of paintings. And I I kind of... At, it was conceived at a time when there were a lot of writers doing similar books about artists. And I kind of elbowed my way into this job because I always adored Jennifer Bartlett's work. I loved it. Even though I'm kind of a blind person, I don't really, I don't have the right nerve endings for art particularly, but I do, I always loved her work. And then when I secured this task, I tried to weasel out of it because I was so (laughs) terrified. But the the big lure for me was that I'd be able to interview her. And she is one of the most verbal people on the planet. And so funny and so smart. And for a visual artist, sometimes that might be surprising, right? Because yes. I almost think that they would say, well, what I mean is, and then point to a picture or something. Yes, not Jennifer. <laughs> no. Not Jennifer. It's quite a thick book I can yes. <laughs> for, for our listeners. <laughs> it's many, many pages. And most of it's just... Jennifer talking. It's an interview with Jennifer talking. And she's so brilliant and so original and so funny. So that was Well looking closely at her art, did that change did that change your writing at all, Deborah? Or did it illuminate Alas, some sort of no. <laughs> it, it was fun to do. Yeah, yeah. But uh no, it changed I I would say it changed nothing. I mean, of course you never know what what changes your work and what doesn't. Right, right. We're not dead yet, right? Right. That's living writers. Living writers, exactly. Exactly. Um, Thanks for noticing that. Um, So, but the short story, like, do you ever think, I'm going to write, like, something longer? Or do you think, this is is the form that, that I want to inhabit? I'd say probably neither. I just let whatever happens happen. 
And I seem to have been thus far encoded with a certain length, which is very, very eccentric length. You know, these sort of long, ungainly, sprawling so-called short stories. But they're very, very long. And um, I do love to cut. So I just love to cut. And... um, so, so you mean that you have incarnations of of these stories, like Window, which could be, which is a very long story too, in the middle of the book that could be like triple the size of that. Oh or? yes, really? Yeah. Okay. I mean, so what are you yes. looking for for the language that you're you're culling? Like, what is because you have this this wonderful economy of language, and it's and 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 it's what poets. What poets need and what and, and what the short story works best with. Um, how- I just I love the sort of dynamism of compression. Uh, you know, like those golf balls that are all rubber bands or whatever they are. <laughs> That's true. Too bad we can't dissect one here. Yes, I love doing that. Um, but I love that kind of dynamism and uh, and uh, uh, you can just kind of get a kind of excuse me a kind of kind of kind of electric sparkling um, if with enough with enough uh, purposeful compression I mean I don't like to I don't like to let anything look mannered. I don't like to compress to that in that way, rather. Because it, the compression doesn't call attention to itself yes, at all. It's I, not as if... if um, yeah, it, it's... And, and also it seems... Because um, it was interesting in Sharon's introduction on Monday before your reading, um, uh, she said that some often the sentences begin somewhere and 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 there, there's length to it. So even though there's compression, it's very long and then right. it comes out right. somewhere qu- quite unexpected. I loved it like, that she said that. I thought that was so amazing. I'd never thought of that, and it made me so happy. Oh, that's great. That that must so because you probably had to sit through a fair number of introductions, huh? They're usually very nice. Oh. I mean, very. <laughs> so, but that was well, just extraordinary. I thought. Uh, well, well, thank thank goodness, thank goodness for that. Well, let's let's take a short break, Deborah, and and we'll we'll come back. You're listening to Living Writers on WCBN FM Ann Arbor today. Deborah Eisenberg. We'll be back.
Hi, you're listening to Living Writers. I'm T. Hetzel, and today on the program, Deborah Eisenberg. Um, and her latest book, you can go by uh, at Shaman Drum, uh, Twilight of the Superheroes. Um, I, I, I should mention also that tomorrow there's an opportunity for, for the public and for students and um, to, for, to go and hear you uh, give a, a public talk, Deborah, right? Um, fiction and privacy, that's still the working title. That is the working title. Why, why do you look <laughs> like sort of slightly forlorn about well, the working title? Um, it's not so much the title that's making me look forlorn it's it's an unaccustomed activity for me so is is it something that you you wrote wrote for this particular oh absolutely oh, absolutely so well it new. could be not great i mean i've never done this sort of thing before and i've always made a point of making sure that i didn't do it so it's really quite an experiment for me for me and uh, and I hope that for everyone else, it you know the test tube won't explode. <laughs> well, well, it feels like it'll be something that's really alive then. I hope. The, I hope so. But it'll be interesting. I wonder how you'll feel after it, and because then you'll have the reading from Monday. Yes. And what? How that will? Uh, uh, I wish it were over now so that okay. I could tell you. <laughs> Well, anyway, I think I think it's like, a, 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 well, we'll just say tomorrow at five o'clock at the, the Rackham Amphitheater, um, a talk on fiction and privacy or uh, something or something, something, like that. some talking will be happening. Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> and the room's very green. So. Yes. Oh, the room is beautiful. I love it. it. It must be sort of interesting to look out at all the greenness. Yes. Too, in the <laughs> yes. It's like being in an aquarium. Right. So it's almost calm. Yes. Yeah. Well, um, well, let's see. well, do you want to give us any sort of preview of that or, or any? Because you know, I just, I'd be so happy to, but I don't think I'm capable of it. Because what I was wondering about, if it's somehow connected to the first story that we were talking about at the get-go, Days, where you said it was something like, this is my only you know, autobiographical piece. And I wondered if it connected something and that's why you were talking about that story because you've got this lecture kind of mulling around in your well, mind. Well, the lecture is completely not personal. I see. Not personal at all. No information about me will be divulged. So is it more verging on the political or it's you know, it's abstract. It's in the abstract world. I'm sort of considering some of the intersections between uh notions of what is public and what is private and writing fiction and uh and are you have you did you why have you been thinking about this is it because of what's going on with thinking about like the erosion of civil liberties in the country or is it something more directly related to a literary uh pursuit well no, I would say that one can't help but think about it now. Uh, and uh, it's always, it's very difficult to talk about uh, the relationship between 
public life and fiction, but I'm quite interested in those questions. And so, and so they're always sort of vaguely on my mind, and I thought I would just kind of mull them over standing there in front of people. So. <laughs> it sounds brilliant. I wish I wasn't teaching then. I'm going to come for the first part. But, okay. <laughs> um, but so because it, it reminds me of something that uh, that when I was uh, thinking about your writing, there was a I read an article that was written in the Telegraph, a UK newspaper. And um, it seems like at that point you were saying that there was a um, in your writing, you're you're going for a kind of accuracy, a sort of truthfulness, and and that's what um, and and how how our ordinary lives intersect with the political and the world. There's almost no way to have an ordinary life that that isn't not at this moment enmeshed. Yeah, well, I mean, not at any moment. In a way, I was. Um, Talking with some students and other faculty, this faculty, this this morning about about that very question. I mean, I just think that social. I mean, when you say that something is political, you're talking about codified or regulated social relations. So that, in a sense. Absolutely every conversation that takes place is in some way political or pre-political or is imbued with political aspects or something. But at this particular in moment... Any, in any culture or more specifically in America, because some of your short stories dealt with traveling to Honduras and Guatemala, right? Yes. So, so are you thinking it's it's more in, in the case for the United States in our culture or... Well, no, I, I think, you know, any two people talking or any two people behaving, suddenly you're in a world <laughs> that, you know, expanded a bit, ramified a bit, and it, it would be called political. Right. But things that are matters that are explicitly political are very, very much impinging on our lives and minds right now. So how do you write under those circumstances. What is the meaning of that for fiction writers? It's very interesting to me. And and is that what you think, what the, because you, you kind of made a side comment earlier that, because uh, I was asking, what what will the, the next stories be? Because obviously they, there's no hurry because it'll take, take, goodness. take a while, right? Indeed it will. You've taught everyone well. <laughs> wait, wait. <laughs> yes, long history of nothing. But but do you think this, I don't know, do you have any notebooks started where these are, because if these are your concerns, is this part of no the writing? No. No, I have no notebook started of any sort. And and you're like, hallelujah about that, right? No. Oh, I would love to be writing. It's so much more fun to be writing than not to be writing. But What's stopping you right now? Oh, then? I Is, wish I knew. And if you have a clue, let me know. <laughs> Well, we'll see what we, the doctor is in. Good, good, excellent. <laughs> well, do you ever find that because you're teaching at, yes. at the University of Virginia too? Yeah. Does your writing life kind of go in rhythms with 
um, the ebb and flow of of the teaching and your energy being funneled that way? Or oh yes, absolutely. I teach only one semester a year, which is kind of necessary for me. I. Th- you know, I try to keep it to one semester, although it's pretty hard to live on that. But um, but I find it extremely hard to teach, uh, and well, to teach and write at the same time, to write while I'm teaching, unless I'm very firmly entrenched in something. Mm. And then I can use my time efficiently when I'm teaching. But otherwise, I can't, because it's a really... I find it to be now many people who write and teach find it uh, that the teaching fuels their writing, and that's just not the case for me. It's I find it really a competitive use of energy because I'm thinking about the work of my students in exactly the way I'd think about my own, as if it were my own, which is not. It's not necessarily the best thing for the student, but that's that's <laughs> that's what they might be coming to you for anyway, just for the or or not. But that's just how it happens, how it happens. in my case. <laughs> yes. Um, and I, I also thought it was interesting because I felt like your your stories were were so. Um, the, that there were connections with the people that I felt like there were, uh, what do I want to say here? Um, I felt that there was a closeness, all, although with almost all the characters, there that was there were pointed moments to show the disconnectedness with the characters, especially um, maybe in the uh, the family story, um, the revenge of the dinosaurs, yes. and um, and even we see that with Otto and his family and how they're interacting together um but it seemed like there and and with the 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 woman um like it or not when who's going um kate on the this trip and and you hear about kind of the periphery of her family life while she's on this trip in in italy um i think yes yes perfect And, and um but what's interesting is I think that there's still like this 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 warmth about the characters and and that's something I'm wondering uh, which leads me to think that it's because you you care deeply for them it's not as if you're you've you've got um, an agenda it feels like you care about them with their their flaws and so there's this empathy yes that's, that's present. Yeah. And I feel like some people say, well, there's distance and there's some coldness in the characters. And that's what they're sort of reading into the stories. Yes. And I wonder, uh, is it possible? It, this is a very long-winded question, but do you have a position on that? <laughs> like, the, the, like, would you say that there's a warmth? Like, when you're seeing, the, when you have these characters in your sights? Yes. I, I, um, I, I mean, I always bristle a bit when people say that, first of all, there are plenty of people who say that my characters are unlikable. Um, yeah, that's what I bristled because I read something where she yes. said that too. <laughs> and I, I frankly don't see what that has to do with anything, uh, first of all. Second of all, I like them. If you don't <laughs> like them, you know, don't like them. But, you know, you don't, why should. 
what does that have to do with me? Mm-hmm. I mean, my I feel that my job is to um, make them as real as possible, which entails uh, a certain degree of empathy, even if they have incredibly er- irritating characteristics. Um, I mean, maybe the people who don't like them don't have any irritating characteristics, but most people do have kind of... They must still be asleep then. Yeah, it could be. <laughs> I mean, I'm sure I have irritating characteristics, but... but No. No, I don't. That's right. But, but it's not really... It doesn't have anything to do with the reality of people. And I'm just very interested with what are these people really like? I don't, I don't care if, you know, if Ralph is able to identify with them or not. Uh, right. Yeah. And which is interesting because in going to the the final story again, a flaw in the design. Um, it, the the opening scene is is with the the mother the wife and and she's actually having an affair yes and so it's not as if we've built up to that and we can see you know we're already on her side or yes. with you know <laughs> um, but it's but but you bring us there because there, there's a reason for to see that first before we see the rest of the family yes isn't there I think so I think so and of course she's somebody that plenty of people could complain about or do complain about as a human being. But I feel, you know, good heaven, she's living in the most tense possible situation. And how is she supposed to deal with it? Uh, you know, she just romanticizes things. I don't... I, I mean, I don't want to judge my characters. I really don't want to judge them. Let them behave as human beings. Because that's the only way there'll be any sort of uh, authentic moment yeah. in the story. Yeah. Right? Yeah. And that's... Um, yeah, because... So, so, so some sort of empathy is what can, can lead maybe to some sort of truth? Or? Yes. I, I, th- I think so. I mean, I think at least you... At least for me, it's... It's imperative to suspend the way I might judge them if they were uh, a friend or a neighbor or an acquaintance. Uh, If they were, I might sort of say, oh, well, she should behave in a different way. She should do something else. She should make a different accommodation to her attention. (laughs) Not hurt me, for example. (laughs) Exactly. Right. But... uh, I don't have to do that as their author because they're, they're not going to hurt me. So I can give them the freedom to behave in the way that they really do and feel in the way that they really do. Well, thank you, Deborah. Thank you. Thank it's, you very much. It's been a great conversation with you. Thanks for coming to Living Writers. Uh, I'm T. Hetzel. Thanks again to Hugh Stimson for engineering. Deborah Eisenberg and her book, uh, Twilight of the Superheroes. I'm T. Hetzel. Until next time.
Puts it around the boards. Hensick is there. Puts it out in front. Shot attempt by Turnbull. He scores! Travis Turnbull took a bouncing puck in front and knocks it in the net. Wolverines extend that lead. It's now 3-1. to one.